Father, you've been so good to already remind us of the fact that we have forgiveness at the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, that is not a forgiveness based upon anything that we could ever do. It's not based upon our performance or our human achievements. It's not based upon our good works. It's based upon the person and the work of his Lord's sacrifice. We thank you for that, that we could sing of your love forever and one day uh, with no more sin in your presence and all of that because of what you've done. Remind us of your love and forgiveness even as we look at Psalm 32. Father, move the affections and every part of our being this morning through the preaching of your word so that we might apply ourselves to confession and to seeking your forgiveness and experiencing, Lord, in our lives, your joy and peace and blessing and that we are driven to the singing of praises as a result of that forgiveness. We ask you these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is the wonderful psalm that we get an opportunity to look at this morning. Psalm 32 is a psalm of David. And on the heading in Psalm 32, it says, A mascal of David. A mascal refers to a skillful, artistic song that was intended to instruct in sound wisdom. That's what a mascal means. So this is a psalm of David, a mascal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and brittle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. May the Lord bless the reading of Psalm 32. Gary Leon Ridgway, known as the infamous Green River Killer, admitted to the killing of at least 49 women during his lifetime and then later on possibly close to 60 women. Ridgway admitted that he had killed many women because he hated women, especially women who were prostitutes. So he took it upon himself to end their life. It was at Ridgway's 2003 sentencing that the families of the victims had the opportunity one by one to speak out and address Ridgway directly. And as you might imagine, um, there were expressions of hurt. There were expressions of furious lashing out at Ridgway for the pain and the grief that he had caused many of these families. And the whole time Ridgway sat there stone-faced, hardened in his heart. 
Each took their turn until one person came up and said something he did not expect to hear. It was Robert Rule, the father of a teenage victim by the name of Linda Jane Rule, his little girl, that took his turn. And Rule's words to Ridgway were not what he expected. He said, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. Ridgway finally showed a glimpse of remorse, and he broke into tears. Stories like that, and I'm sure others that we can share from our own experience about forgiveness, grip our hearts, don't they? Because they remind us of the, of the unique, extraordinary, out-of-this-world nature of forgiveness. On the human level, I think we might say that forgiveness is, is probably the greatest act of love that a human being can express to another human being. To pardon someone of hurt committed against them is, is a great expression of love, if it's genuine. And beloved, if you, human forgiveness is, is wondrous and marvelous, how much more divine forgiveness How much more of the forgiveness that we've experienced from God, the forgiveness that we've experienced as forgiven sinners by God through Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about this forgiveness in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I have found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul understood that he was a great sinner, but that he had been saved by an even greater God. And he spoke of that forgiveness repeatedly in his own life. It was this divine forgiveness that Jesus prayed for in Luke chapter 23 for those who were killing him and had humiliated him. He prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And a great expression of selflessness and love by our Lord on the cross. It was forgiveness that Jesus granted to one of the thieves on the cross who was guilty and they deserved to be on that cross. And Jesus, blameless and innocent, forgave that criminal on the cross, not based upon what he did in his own life, but at that moment he believed in the Messiah and he was forgiven of his sins. Oh, divine forgiveness is amazing, isn't it? And you and I can attest in our own lives as we we play the video of our own lives and rehearse the things that we've done not only to ourselves, but to other people, and most importantly to God, before coming to know Jesus, and even since coming to know Jesus in our weakness, and our sinfulness, we can attest to the beauty and the wonder and the marvel of God's forgiveness. Amen? It's this forgiveness that Psalm 32 is all about, beloved. 
Psalm 32 is a, is a psalm of thanksgiving for God's forgiveness in David's life as a believer. And as David reflects back on his journey to forgiveness, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he is eager to instruct his audience. That's why he calls it a mascal, uh, an artistic, skillful song intended to instruct in sound wisdom. He's eager to talk to them about the importance from his own experience of confessing their sins that they might experience God's forgiveness and blessing in the form of joy and peace and a clear conscience and exuberant singing of praises in their lives as they deal with their sin. You see, as Christians, it is absolutely true that we are forgiven in an objective way. Meaning that objectively, outside of ourselves, forgiveness has been granted to us based upon the person and the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone. We cannot contribute anything to it. We don't add anything to the person and work of Christ. We have been forgiven. Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient. It is finished. And we've been forgiven objectively. But if we wish to experience subjectively the benefits of our salvation, the benefits of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the ongoing joy and, and peace and gratitude and the desire to praise God in our lives directly into other people, then we must be people who rightly deal with our sin. And Psalm 32 is directly applicable for us, beloved. And so here we have yet another beautiful psalm. Designed in poetic fashion to move the affections of God's people through the experience of somebody that was flesh and blood, David, just like us, to encourage us along the lines of rightly dealing with our sin. And so David takes us on a journey through his very experience and gives us a glimpse into that which he was going through in the midst of known unconfessed sin in his life. And that's the issue. And as he does so, he counsels us with six important lessons that he learned on his journey here. So that we might be driven as well to confess our sins, to find forgiveness in God and experience his great blessing. What are these six important lessons that David learned and he wants to impart to his audience? First of all, he wants to impart to us in this psalm that there's exuberant happiness in God's forgiveness. That there's exuberant happiness in God's forgiveness. Look at verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The idea there in verse 1 is how exceedingly happy is the person who has received forgiveness. Notice where David begins. In a place that we would not expect, as we've heard the rest of the psalm read already, he begins by celebrating the forgiveness of God, and he's going to end, if you look at verse 11, by celebrating the forgiveness of God. Be glad, verse 11, in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous ones, excuse me, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. David begins by celebrating God's forgiveness, and you would think that he would have begun with verses 3 and 4. Talking about what, what happened in the midst of his spiritual darkness as he knew about his sin and he wasn't confessing it to the Lord. And then you would expect him to go to verse 5, secondly. Then you would expect him to go to verses 1 and 2 and talk about the, the great exuberant happiness of God's forgiveness. But he begins by accentuating the greatness of the, of the blessing 
of forgiveness that God has granted him. You know what I experienced when I got honest about my sin? David is saying here, blessing and joy and happiness and a desire, verse 11, to shout for joy, to praise God exuberantly when I dealt with my sin the right way. That's what he says. That's why in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3, David also there says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he preaches to himself. Why? One of the benefits there in Psalm 103, verse 3, is because God pardons all of your iniquities. And so David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who heals our infirmities, who pardons our iniquities. And thus we bless him. Now note that David's exuberance and happiness... It's great here because he was forgiven of great sin against God. And he uses three different words here to describe his great sin. It's like when you are genuinely sorry and and broken over the fact that you've offended somebody else. And perhaps you've come to that person and you said, hey, I am so sorry, honey. I am so sorry, brother. I am so sorry, sister, about what I've done. I am such a loser. I am such a lame-o. I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. And you keep piling up words on top of each other. Please forgive me. That's the idea here. In poetic fashion, David uses various words, piling on words for sin, to accentuate the seriousness of his sin. By transgression, he emphasizes that he had willfully rebelled against against God. David, by using that word transgression, recognizes that his sin was not just and ultimately against people, but it was against God. That's why in his direct confession in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because ultimately, beloved, we can hide sin from people, but we sin in the very presence of Almighty God in his sight. And then he uses the word sin, by which he emphasizes that his failure to measure up to God's perfect standard that he had, he had, it wasn't that he had not pleased other people or measured up to other people's standard. Ultimately, he, was, he had missed the target, the bullseye of God's perfect standard in his sin. And then he uses the word iniquity, by which he describes his behavior and his conduct as perverse, as twisted, as crooked. David had been in his known, unrepentant, sinful state, on a crooked and twisted path, the path that Psalm 1 condemns in contrast to the righteous path. David had been in a great state of deception. That's why he says at the end of verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He had been deceived by his own sin. And so what is David doing with all of these words that he's piling up on top of another here? Is he giving us a, a theology of sin? No. What he's doing is he's acknowledging his deep contrition over his sin. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't diminish it. He belabors it. He accentuates and underscores his sin because he considers it serious. Oh, we tend to do the opposite, don't we? Well, you know, there are all kinds of extenuating circumstances for why I did that. You know, my upbringing is to blame People hurt me. I'm a victim of my environment. 
I am not responsible for that. That's the way that I was treated. So that's the way I treat my family or that's the way I treat other people because this is the way that I was treated growing up. And we excuse and downplay and diminish the seriousness of our sin. We ignore it or we just call it something else but sin or transgression or iniquity. Steve Lawson comments this quote, let us take counsel from this psalm and be reminded Man calls sin an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it a blasphemy. Man calls it a chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it an error. God calls it an enmity. Man calls it a fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it an iniquity. Man calls it a luxury. God calls it a leprosy. Man calls it a liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness, end quote. See, we must understand the seriousness of our sin, right? And David does that here. He calls it out for the disease and and the cancer, so to speak, that it is. Beloved, until we see our sin, we will not experience truly the the sorrow of our sin so that we are driven to confess our sin to God and to other people. We must see the seriousness of our sin for what it is. And until we see our sin so that we are driven to confess it to the Lord, we won't experience the type of celebratory, exuberant happiness that David knew in his heart and had experienced of God's forgiveness and love. Because for some of us, eh, it's a little blunder that I commit here and there. Oh, it's just, you know, it's part of being human. It's part of being a person who is not perfect. And we don't really think of it as a big deal against God. We don't see it as an affront to His holy character. We don't see it as a breach in our relationship with Him, with our Father, that we need to deal with. We need to feel remorse over our sin that we might be driven to celebratory type of praising because of the forgiveness that we find in the Lord. I recall hearing the testimony of of a pastor in Mexico City one time where this guy just went on and shared about for 15 to 20 minutes about how the Lord had saved him from being a, a drunkard and an abuser. He had abused his wife, abused his kids physically. He had done all kinds of different things. He had been unfaithful. Multiple cases of infidelity in his life. Most of those when his wife was a believer already and she never left him but forgave him. And he's talking about this. And beloved, the whole time he is broken and he's crying. He's sobbing because he felt the weight of his sin. But then he transitioned And he started talking about God's forgiveness and how his wife had shared the gospel with him and other people had shared the gospel with him. And all of a sudden, his countenance changed from still tear-eyed, but now joy and gladness in his face because he started talking about the love of God and the forgiveness of God. See, there is a guy who understood the weight of his sin, but he understood that he had a greater God who was forgiving in Christ Jesus and loving in Christ. Oh, David does that here. He's happily celebrating the fact that God is even greater in his forgiveness. And he does so by using three different words here. Notice in verses one and two, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Three different times, three different words here. He uses forgiveness and covering and does not impute iniquity to highlight the the greater reality and glory of God's forgiveness. God forgave David, meaning that the burden of the guilt of his sin was lifted. That's what the idea there of forgiveness means. He was released of his of his burden. Like the like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, whose burden fell off his shoulders upon coming face to face with the cross, his load was taken off and it fell off. That is what David experienced when he confessed his sin. God also covered David's sin which has a similar idea to that of the word propitiation in the New Testament. Propitiation, as you know, is is a wrath-removing sacrifice by the covering of Jesus' blood. That's propitiation. That's the idea here. God himself took care of my sin. He covered my sin. God didn't sweep David's sin under the rug. God covered David's sin and forgave him. And we ultimately know that that was upon the cross of Jesus Christ, right? For Jesus died for all sins of every human being that has ever lived and walked on this planet, including David. God dealt with his sin. God also removed the debt that he owed. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, meaning does not impute or count iniquity to. In the sense of that, that God, that David owed God a debt because of his sin, and God removed that debt and paid that debt. Instead, of course, counted him righteous in Jesus Christ, even though the future culmination of that would take place at the cross. All of these actions here underscore God's great forgiveness that is the basis, beloved, for David's exuberant, glad happiness here because he's been forgiven. And as Christians, may I remind us that we must, we must happily, exuberantly celebrate such forgiveness. Just think about your own life again. How often do you spend time really reflecting and thinking back of your life and the things that you've done, not so that you could wallow in self-pity, not so that you could get spiritually depressed, but that then you could say, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, made me alive together with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. How often do you do that? So that you, you're celebratory about the forgiveness and the love of God in your life. Oh, we sing of it in the refrain to the song, It is well with my soul, don't we? Remember? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Say it with me. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That is us preaching to our souls. Because we understand that having been great sinners, Jesus nailed our sin to the cross and dealt with it definitively. It is finished. It is finished. And so we can praise Him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Some of you cannot celebrate this way because you've not tasted of the goodness and forgiveness of the Lord found in Jesus Christ. And that is where you need to begin You need to be reminded that there's nothing that God won't or can forgive you of. No sin that you've committed is too great for a great God to not forgive you. If you will only confess Jesus as Lord, if you will lay down your rebellion, 
self-worship and self-idolatry and instead delight yourself in the King, King Jesus, the Redeemer and the Savior of mankind. That's where it begins for you. And so David begins here by illustrating to us that there's exuberant happiness or instructing us that there's exuberant happiness in God's forgiveness. But it wasn't always the case for David, was it? As Pastor Carnes taught us from Psalm 51 a few Sundays ago, David, as a follower of God, as a man after God's own heart for a period of time, forfeited God's blessing and joy and peace and a clear conscience in his own life. And how did he do this? He did it by hiding his own sin, right? And so there's a second lesson for us. It's true that there's great happiness, exuberant happiness and forgiveness. But secondly, there's terrible pain when we hide our sin. There's terrible pain when we hide our sin in verses 3 and 4. David gives us a glimpse and plays a video for us of his past, of the inner workings of his heart and what he went through before he confessed his sin to the Lord. What it was like for him to live in known, unrepentant sin. Because listen, he had piled one sin on top of another. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, having been been, um, uh, not on his A game, so to speak, as a king and going out to battle. But then he commits adultery with a woman, not his wife, Bathsheba. And then to cover up his sin, instead of confessing his sin, what does he do? He covers up his sin by having Uriah... Her husband, a faithful, loyal soldier, one of David's best top comrades in in, in battle, killed. So there's murder, adultery, deception, lying, one sin on top of another. And instead of confessing his sin, he hid his sin, maybe because, because of reputation. Maybe because he was concerned about what people would think. Maybe because of the consequences. Maybe because of the shame that that would bring to him. And all of this secrecy, beloved, not before God, for God saw everything, but before people made life terribly painful, terribly painful and hurtful for David. Proverbs 13, 15 says that the way of the treacherous or transgressor is hard, hard. And here in Psalm 32, verse 10, later on he says that many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10. See, we can forfeit the subjective experience, as David did, of God's blessing, of his joy and of his peace and of a clear conscience. And here David describes that. He describes, look at verse 3, his self-inflicted pain. Underline that, self-inflicted, because he didn't need to live this way. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, and that's the issue. It's not that David needed to be perfect, that he could never sin. It was that he deceptively hid his sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all, through my groaning day and night. That describes his physical and even emotional inward groaning and, and pain. The longer David hid his sin, the more he deteriorated physically and emotionally and even spiritually. Look at verse 4. My vitality, that is my energy, was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Literally, verse 4, my life juices were drained, sapped, sucked dry. My life juices. 
because of my unknown, unconfessed sin. All day long he felt the the physical and spiritual effects of his unconfessed sin, did David. And this is what unconfessed sin does, beloved. It's like a disease. The more that we hide our sin, the more it becomes a heavy, insurmountable and painful burden upon our lives that, that hurts us and that hurts other people around us in every way. And we can even come to the point where we, are, where we are in deep anguish of soul and body, of spirit, downcast and even falling into depression because of our sin. Now you say, does that mean that all suffering is a result of sin? No, not necessarily. I think we need to be very careful with that, even in the way that we deal with one another. That when a brother or sister in Christ is going through some kind of suffering in their life, that we're not so quick to say, oh, there's probably some sin in your life, like Job's counselors. Not all sorrow, beloved, is necessarily connected to sin. It could be, but it takes evaluation and questions and relationship, a loving relationship to ask and to ask those probing questions. And it could go back to a root of sin, yes, but not all sorrow is necessarily connected to sin. What do you say about Jesus on the cross? Matthew 26, verse 38. What did the Lord say in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were about to, to um, betray him? He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Sorrow grief the Lord experienced. He was perfect, sinless, and he had sorrow and grief. What about Job? Job. God even testified to Job's faithfulness, right? So not all physical, emotional, or spiritual suffering is the direct result of our sin or because we've done something wrong. What Psalm 32 is about or addressing is known, unconfessed sin in the life of the follower of God that if not dealt with can lead to devastating consequences as seen in David's life. Put it in context and what's being addressed here. Now, often we are deceived into thinking that, you know what, if I'm going through this or somebody else is going through sin, that God is ignoring it. That God has swept your sin under the rug. That he's indifferent to your sin. That God is like people. They just forget about sin or things that happen sometimes in their weakness. God does not forget our sin. In fact, David says in verse 4, notice, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God doesn't have literal hand. That's an anthropomorphism there, a a poetic literary device meant to teach a truth to human beings in human language to us about God. Something about God in human language that we can understand. And so God's hand there is his powerful, direct involvement and participation and concern in David's life. David knew that God's hand was upon him. Far from distant far from sweeping his sin under the rug, far from indifferent to David's unconfessing, God's hand of chastisement and discipline was upon David very, very heavily because God's hand is pretty powerful, right? God was directly involved. And so we shouldn't ever think, beloved, that God doesn't see our sin and that God downplays it or that he's indifferent to it. The truth is that he's very concerned about it. You know what? He's concerned about your sin even if you're a non-believer this morning. Utterly concerned. 
Because unless you deal with your sin and turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you cannot have a relationship with your Creator. And so God calls upon you through message after message and person after person to lay down, drop your arms and your weapons and now be about allegiance and devotion to Jesus Christ. Oh, God cares about your sin, unrepentant sinner. And if you are his child, if you are a believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ, like a loving heavenly father, he will bring you and I with loving chastisement and discipline to the point where we are spiritually healthy. He is relentless in his love for us. See, we might see Psalm 32 as simply an act of God's judgment upon David. And it was that because God is just. But it was also an act of love from a father who loved David and didn't want him to live this way and experience this hurtful pain in his life. And so God disciplined David as a father. As Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4 through 11 tells us that God disciplines us as a father being his legitimate children, view God's discipline in your life through relational terminology and language. He is your father. What do physical fathers want to do for their kids but good and benefit them? And the writer of Hebrews there in Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 says, if, if physical fathers do the best that they can trying to do good for their children, how much more a perfect heavenly father will do good to his children, right? Well, God does that for us that we might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that we might share in His holiness, His motivation as our Father to discipline us, His love for us. And that's what God was doing for David. God will do whatever is necessary, beloved, to bring us to the point of experiencing His forgiveness and His blessing. And perhaps you are sitting here right now, and God is speaking to you. And like David, you understand that there's pain and hurt in the sin that you are living in right now. You understand that there's unconfessed sin in your life. First of all, to the Lord and to somebody else that you love or to a brother or sister in Christ. May I remind you that this psalm is directly for you. That you might come clean before the Lord and be honest about where you're at spiritually. So that you might experience His blessing like this and celebrate the way that David did in verses 1 through 2. Celebrate God's forgiveness and love. So David instructs us here in this psalm that there's great exuberant happiness in God's forgiveness. In contrast, that there's great pain, terrible pain in hiding our sin. But thirdly, in verse 5, that there's a beautiful solution to unlocking God's forgiveness. There's a beautiful solution to unlocking God's forgiveness. And that solution, beloved, like a key is confession. Confession. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my sins and my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Here is the turning point, the pivotal moment in David's journey, the key that unlocked God's forgiveness, His love, His blessing upon David in his life. Confession. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. 
That is, I brought it to full disclosure. I didn't hide it. I didn't conceal it, but I exposed it, brought it to light. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's a Hebrew word, confess there. That means to speak out openly about one sin rather than ignoring it or downplaying it. And notice, David is expressing in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 publicly his sin before the congregation. So that it's not just personal confession before the Lord, but also to the people of God, that they might rejoice in God's forgiveness in David's life. All of these descriptions here describe what confession involves. Agreeing with God about your sin, seeing your sin the way that God sees it as a terrifying, horrible thing that hurts you, that is an affront to God's holy character, and that is a breach of your relationship with your Heavenly Father. That is what sin is, and that is what confession understands. In confession, we have a brokenness and a sorrow, a genuine sorrow over the fact that we've offended our Heavenly Father, and we're driven to fully acknowledge our sin. We stop hiding it, and we fully embrace the consequences that come our way as a result of our sin. In short, confession is all about getting honest about your sin with God and others. See, we are so proud, aren't we? So proud. Some of us run away from transparency. Run away from being open about our sin. First of all, before God, as if God didn't see our sin, and even before other people, even trusted people. We run away. We pretend that we have no sin. We put on a facade like we've put it, got it all together. We acknowledge, yes, I was saved by grace, but I live by my own moral bootstraps. And we're not transparent about our sin. And we proudly look upon people who are open about their sin. As if, why, why would they share their dirty laundry like that? Why would they show weakness? Don't they know that I might think differently about them? Don't they know that others are going to get the wrong idea about them? What's our problem? What's our problem with the lack of transparency as if we brought something to the table in this Christian life and as if we are kept by our own moral bootstraps rather than by God's sufficient grace? And what's our problem being self-righteously, legalistically proud when other people are transparent about their weaknesses or they show weaknesses, all of a sudden we give people the cold shoulder and we stay away from them as if we are better than other people because they are weak and we are strong in ourselves. Beloved, listen, when we confess and acknowledge our weakness as believers to God, first of all, and to one another within right parameters, I understand confidence in all of that. You can't run around telling everybody all of your problems. I understand. But when we practice biblical confession, confession brings glory to God, to God and his saving, gracious gospel. Martin Luther wrote this quote, The Christian way essentially consists in acknowledging ourselves to be sinners and in praying for grace. End quote. Why do we pretend to be stronger than we are? God receives the glory, beloved, when we recognize daily our weakness and His sufficient grace in our lives, in our weakness, right? 
That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking about his thorn in the flesh, he said, the thing that I'm learning about this whole thing is that Jesus is strong and I am weak. So I would rather boast about my weaknesses, he says, that the power of Christ would be perfected in me. Because when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ, right? John Calvin wrote this, quote, It's fitting that by the confession of our own wretchedness, we show forth the goodness and the mercy of our God among ourselves and before the whole world, end quote. Listen, beloved, God is magnified as a gracious, good shepherd who forgives his people when we are confessing our sins to one another and before a lost world as well that understands that, you know what, if they could be continually forgiven of great sins, then I am not far from God's grace too. Our loving and gracious God who forgives wants us to be honest about our sin and to practice biblical transparency and not be proud and arrogant. You know, closely related to this is we're just fearful people, aren't we? Instead of fearing God, fearing offending and grieving our Heavenly Father with unconfessed sin in our life, we fear people and we think to ourselves, what will they think? How is this going to affect my reputation? What's going to be their opinion of me? They will never treat me the same for sure, right? All of those answers, beloved, show fear and pride in the heart. That is the problem when we fear people rather than fear God and we don't do what is right and what Scripture calls us to, which is confess our sins to the Lord and to one another. For others of us, we misunderstand confession. Just misunderstand confession. This is especially true if you come from a Roman Catholic church background. We might say, confession is not necessary because we are not Roman Catholics. And it's true. Christians don't go to a priest to confess their sins so that that man can forgive them. We don't practice auricular confession, which is going to a man, a human priest, so that that priest can forgive us. There's only one high priest with a capital H-N-P, and that is Jesus Christ, the Savior. He is the high priest. And he said, Hebrews 4.16, We're instructed there to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To who do we go to? We go to Jesus, the high priest of our confession. So you're right. We don't practice confession before a human priest. That is blasphemy to do that. And in a toning kind of way, no way. That is robbing Jesus of his his sufficient sacrifice. He is sufficient. He is everything. His work on the cross is finished. Nobody adds anything to it. Nobody modifies or edits what Jesus did. Right? When you score a perfect 10, there's no other way to improve on a perfect 10. That's it. Jesus scored a perfect 10 on the cross. That's what he did. But confession is necessary as ongoing believers in our Christian walk. Or we say confession is not necessary because we are Christians, right? And yet, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, other Psalms are a case in point that David was confessing his sin personally and corporately, collectively to, to, the, to his audience so that they might be driven to praise God for forgiveness. How do you say we're not to be confessing our sins? Scripture warns those who don't confess their sins. 
Listen to Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, forsaking your sins, by the way, is a fruit of genuine confession. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And it may surprise you that not only are we to confess our sins to God, but to one another, as David says, does in Psalm 51, Psalm 32. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is not talking about confess your sins to some human priest. It's talking about the, the active, ongoing um, one-anothering of people. And one of those things is to come to one another so that we might help one another in the Christian life when we are weak in a particular area. Galatians 6 verses 1 through 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of love in Galatians chapter 5. When we bear one another's burdens, and surely those burdens are also have to do in some way, shape, or form with besetting sins. When we help one another walk through those dark moments of life with besetting sins, we are practicing love. Love. And one of the most important texts in all of Scripture on confession is 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, written to, take note, believers, Christians. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says this to Christians, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, don't say that you got it all together. Don't say that you're perfect. Don't walk around self-righteously pretending that you don't have any more sin. Later on, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But what does a believer do? If we confess our sins, that is to say the same thing as God says about our sin. That means agreeing with God about the way that God sees our sin. That is confession. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? On the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, right? So one of the marks of a genuine Christian is that they continually confess their sins and in so doing experience God's forgiveness and experience God's joy, God's peace, a clear conscience, assurance, comfort, and a desire to sing praises by yourself before other people corporately, right? Some of you need to ask yourselves this question. Why is it that when I am together with other brethren in such a glorious event as corporate worship service, I cannot get up to sing praises? What's going on? Because David, in verse 11, says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. You who are upright in heart, upright in heart shout for joy. And in this context, the upright and the righteous, as we're going to see, are those who have been forgiven, who have confessed their sins. Those people... Now, praise God and worship and shout for joy. So ask yourself that question. What is up with your lack of singing? Personally, corporately? Listen, I don't have a good voice at all. At all. I mean, I'm telling you right now. But I love to sing. Love to sing. I feel sorry for the people who are standing around me most of the time. They have to listen to me. 
But I love to sing because I love the Lord. And he has forgiven me of so much, beloved. If I were to tell you the things that I've done in my life, you would not believe it. You would think, what the heck? He did that before he came to Christ. He should not even be up there, this man. But you know what? I am an example and an expression of the love of God and his forgiveness. And each and every one of us are that. So David's confession of his sin was the beautiful solution, the key that unlocked God's forgiveness. And David lived, if you notice at the end of verse 5, to tell of God's forgiveness. He said, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Not only my sin, but the guilt of it. The guilt of it. So on the heels of his personal experience, David instructs us, there's exuberant happiness in God's forgiveness. There's terrible pain in hiding our sin. There's a beautiful solution that unlocks God's forgiveness. But then he really turns up the heat in the last three lessons that we have here. Notice the verse, the, 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 the therefore there in verse 6. Therefore, and he's going to give us even some more lessons now. As a result of his own experience, there's a fourth lesson. There's sure safety in God's presence, David says in verses 6 and 7. There's sure safety in God's presence. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. What is he talking about? He's not put it in context. The godly person is a person who confesses his or her sin before the Lord. And that is the moment when God can be found because God is continually calling upon us and convicting us of our sin that we might come to him. That is the moment when God is found in our lives. And the godly person responds to God's prompting to confess their sin. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. A flood of many waters there. He's speaking of times of trouble. But specifically in David's case, a time when God may be found is when God was speaking to him, convicting him of his sin. In those times, David being a godly man, and he's instructing others now who are godly, respond to God's chastening hand, and they run to God because he's readily available, and he is sure safety and sure refuge. God is the godly's comforting, sure safety, beloved. When we are truly broken and truly contrite over our sin, beloved, genuinely, and you come to God as his child, you understand that God will never, ever cast you away. He won't. It isn't like God says, oh, here comes that person again, that Campus Hernandez. Oh, my goodness. This is the 97th time that he has done that. That's it. That's enough of that. No. James 1 says that he's generous. That he doesn't reproach us. That he's abounding in loving kindness and truth and forgiveness for his people. Why? Because of Christ, you see. Because of Jesus. And so Psalm 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The psalmist in Psalm 95, verse 7, warns, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the idea here in Psalm 32. David is essentially saying the same to the godly. Pray to God if he's speaking to you. Come to him for safety. Come to him for, for forgiveness. You are my hiding place, he says in verse 7. 
You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I can assure you right now that David is speaking in verse 7 of him post having confessed his sin. That is why he's experiencing God as his refuge, his hiding place, God preserving him from trouble, God surrounding him with songs of deliverance. Only happens experientially, subjectively speaking, when we have dealt with our sin and been reminded of the cross of Christ and being forgiven in the cross of Christ. It was in confession and subsequent forgiveness that, that David found safety and refuge in God. He went from the depths of despair to the heights of praise. Amazing. There's a fifth lesson for us here. He continues with the exhortation in verses 8 through 10 by reminding us that there's abundant blessing for those who humble themselves. There's abundant blessing for those who humble themselves. Verses 8 through 10. On the heels of his own spiritual journey to forgiveness, here is now David, or God speaking through David, expressing the very personal counsel of God to every person who is reading this. Listen, beloved, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Doesn't that sound like Proverbs? Wisdom crying out from the streets. Listen to me. Treasure me. Cherish me, says wisdom. It's very proverbial here. Verse 9, what is the counsel? Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and brittle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. What is God saying here? This is an urgent call and a plea to his people to resist stubborn pride in our failure to not confess our sins. In other words, he says, don't be like the obstinate, stiff-necked horse or stubborn mule who simply won't listen just by mere words to their owner or their rider, but need to be controlled, checked by bit and brittle. They need to be forced and coerced to do what is right or to obey. Don't be like that. Don't be obstinate. Don't be stubborn about your sin. There's forgiveness, but you need to speak up about it and be honest with God. And this is what pride does, right? We keep hearing God's voice. And we proudly instead pretend our sin is not there, ignore it, downplay it, we dig in our heels like a stubborn mule. But what does humility do? Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. What is he talking about with trusting in the Lord? He's talking about in the context of responding to God's prompting to turn from your sin, to confess your sin. You show trust and fidelity to the Lord when you deal with your sin before him because you trust that he's going to love you, forgive you, and that he's going to renew you once again, right? That's how you trust in the Lord in this context. He says, those who trust in the Lord will experience loving kindness. Loving kindness shall surround them. That's the beautiful word hesed in the Hebrew. Translated loving kindness in the New American Standard Bible. It refers to God's steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love for his people. And I would add this, based upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's loving kindness. Those who trust in the Lord and deal with their sin are surrounded and clothed, lavished with God's chesed, His loving kindness. Isn't that beautiful? Finally, when we do deal with our sin, what will the result be? Lesson number six. 
There's joyful praise when we are forgiven, verse 11. There's joyful praise when we're forgiven. By the end of the psalm, notice David is pleading in verse 11 with all those who are righteous and upright in heart, who have confessed their sins and been forgiven, to verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Sing, celebrate, praise God. Praise Him. He's worthy because of His forgiveness. Shout for joy. These are the joyful expressions of praise for those who have, of those who have dealt with their sin and been forgiven, beloved. That's why in Psalm 51, verse 15, when David is confessing his sin in the midst of the wallowing mire of his sin, he says, Oh Lord, open my lips. Unseal my lips. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. What's up with David? He has some kind of disease of the mouth. He was stuck in sin. And he didn't feel like praising God. And he says, oh Lord, open my lips, unseal my lips. How? How is that going to happen? Through confession of his sin and forgiveness found in Christ. Right? So that he declared God's praise. What was he saying? That God would forgive him and renew him again so that he would sing and praise God. Beloved, listen to me. Confession is a necessary Aspect of spiritual health, vibrancy, vitality, and worship. Ultimately, when we live in known, unrepentant, unconfessing, we don't worship God privately or corporately as we should. But when we're dealing with our sin, we could be going through some very difficult times. Suffering, trials, afflictions, death, physical pains, whatever. And there's the joy of the Lord, isn't there? The joy of the Lord being this this amazing, um, supernatural, deep-seated confidence and disposition in the fact that God is utterly in control and loves you and He is still going to express His care and goodness to you, even in the midst of your trials and your sufferings. And you can then express joy because of who God is, not because of our circumstances. This is why He saved us. He saved us so that we might sing, so that we might be those people who are driven to joyful praise of His great name. I love Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not exult, we exult. That means we glory in, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God saved us, beloved, not so that we would be delivered from hell. He saved us that we might praise Him and experience subjectively a foretaste of His joy and peace and clear conscience in this life and forevermore. We exult in hope of the glory of God. And this only happens in Christ. In Christ. Christ is everything. Christ is in Him, it says that in the, on the, at the right hand of God the Father are pleasures forever. Who is that? The Son. The Son. Christ is everything. Listen, each of us need to take this message to heart today. Is there personal secret, not before God, but before others, and you're pretending like God doesn't see it, is there secret personal sin that you need to confess to God and to others? Beginning with those who are closest to you. What about in your family? 
Are you fulfilling your responsibility? That is sin too. When you're not fulfilling your God-given responsibility in the home as a husband, wife, or as a parent, do you need to confess your sin to God? That you are dropping the ball and confess it to your spouse or to brothers and sisters in Christ? What about your job? Do you need to confess to the Lord and to others that you are not walking in integrity in your job? That you're stealing money? What about love for the brethren? Are you a gossiper? A slanderer? Maybe very explicitly or very passively. You do it very subtly. Very very behind the scenes. Do you need to confess that to the Lord and confess that to other people and ask for forgiveness? See, there are so many implications for Psalm 32 for us, right? As far as confession. So many. And you know what the confidence that we have, beloved, is? That if you are a believer, the answer to your confession before God is, yes, I forgive you in Christ. There's always hope in Him. And you know what that does as well? That plunges us then into a real experience of His blessing, even in the midst of our afflictions and the hard things that we go through. We can experience joy and peace, knowing that we are walking with a clear conscience before God and before other people, right? Oh, the Lord wants us to experience a foretaste of those blessings in this life. And perfectly when King Jesus returns and we are with him forever. In application of this message, I want you to close your eyes. Every eye closed and heads bowed. And I want you to take an opportunity right now in application of Psalm 32 to ask God to search your heart. Lord, search me. Is there something I need to confess to you? Is there something I need to, then after that, confess to somebody else? So that, Lord, I can live in your blessing. Take a couple of minutes to do that right now. Father, what a clear message to us, your people, that we need to live in the freedom of your forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. Not only though, as those, Father, who need to enter a relationship with you by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but also as Christians, that the life of a Christian is a life of continual confession, Lord, so that we might experience your blessings in a wonderful relationship of openness and transparency with you, our Heavenly Father. O oh Lord, move in the hearts of your people. Move in each of our hearts and move our affections so that, Lord, we might find our delight in you and not in our sin, secret or public. And, Father, may we be reminded as well, as First John 1 says, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we live in that glorious reality that when we confess our sins to you, the answer will always be, yes, I forgive you because of my son. We ask you these things in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.